This is Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, and you're listening to a special Q&A episode all about my solo hike of the 800-mile Arizona Trail. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. This is a special edition episode of the podcast. I'll have season 13 for you on December 22nd, as promised. But in the meantime, I wanted to take the time to answer some of the great questions that I've received in the month since I finished my hike of the Arizona Trail. I'll tell you more about that and what you can expect from this episode in a sec. But in the meantime, in case you're new to Real Talk Radio, I would love to first share what we do here. So on this show, my guests and I are committed to one thing, telling the truth about our lives. No one's trying to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. No one's here to prey on your insecurities by pitching you the perfect 10-day, six-step, must-have life hack plan for anything. I'm so over that kind of thing, and my guess is that you are too. Life is complicated, right, and messy and painful and beautiful, and we deserve more than a bunch of life hacking tips and people telling us that we aren't good enough, but we will be if we buy, you know, X, Y, or Z thing. So here at Real Talk Radio, we don't do that. We do things differently. I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others, and we dive deep into topics like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, courage, change, and everything in between that makes up life. This is an adult podcast, and we cover adult subjects, often using adult language, and we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way. So with this mission in mind, you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. The show is 100% listener funded, which means that we have total freedom from any kind of outside influence. So instead, these conversations, they're made possible by people like you who give $8 or more per eight episode season. If you're already supporting the show, thank you so much. You're the best. I tell you this all the time, and I'm so ridiculously grateful that you're helping me to bring more real talk into the world. And if you haven't joined our support, support squad yet, this is an awesome time to do so. But first, before I tell you how you can join, let's talk about beliefs. I believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world that we want to live in. And when you help to fund this show, you're voting for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a wide-ranging group of people, the vast majority of whom are women. So when you support this show, you're saying loudly and proudly that women's voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off limits due to fear or shame. This is a show by truth tellers for truth tellers. And if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. As a thank you, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our virtual monthly book club, my weekly behind-the-scenes email series where I share my real life in real time, and you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for Real Talk Live, the small, fun, in-person event series that kicked off in London and Portland over the past few months. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And now, let's dive right into today's episode. Today, I'm answering 11 listener questions about my solo hike of the 800-mile Arizona Trail, which I completed this fall. I share why I wanted to do this hike, my initial fears, the hardest and best parts of long-distance hiking, and the truth of day-to-day life on trail. I also do my best to explain why I keep doing such hard things when I'm mostly miserable while I do them. Um, I share what I want to hike next, what I've learned, and so much more. So thank you so much to everyone who submitted questions, and all of that starts in just a moment. And as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. 
right. Special edition episode Q&A all about my Arizona trail through hike. I'm excited to talk about this. I love talking about long distance hiking and I've gotten so many great questions in the month, little over a month now, um, that I have been back from Arizona and this is an awesome chance to just get to give some honest answers. So I'm going to do my best to cover as much as possible. Specifically, I'm going to be answering 11 questions that were submitted by listeners, but I will aim to touch on as many of the things that folks have mentioned on Instagram as possible. If I you know, don't cover something that you wanted to hear about, feel free to ask additional questions. Instagram is a great place to do that so then other people can see the answers as well. Um, I certainly don't have all the answers when it comes to long distance hiking, not even close. I'm still really quite a beginner um, at this. But I'm always happy to be as honest as possible about my own experience. <laughs> That's something that you can always count on me for is uh, personal honesty. Uh, I did get a bunch of questions about gear and food. I'm not really going to talk about that too much now because I think that stuff's easier done when you can link to specific products. Um, so I have a hiking blog. Uh, it's citygirlgonewild.com. You can find uh, my gear list there. Uh, that might be helpful. Uh you know, the food that I brought on this hike, that's all there. Um, daily stories from my very first long distance hike, which was the Oregon section of the PCT last year. All of that is over at citygirlgonewild.com. So gear and food stuff, that's a great place for that. Again, if you have specific questions, just um, give me a shout on Instagram and I'm happy to answer. So a little recap before I get into specifically the questions about Arizona Trail. Um, just wanted, in case you know folks are new, to do a recap of my hiking origin story, I guess you will call it. Uh, I did my very first long distance hike. I did the Oregon section of the PCT last year, and I did a similar sort of recap, wrap-up Q&A episode um, when I got back. I'll put a link in the show notes in case you want to go back and listen to that. So that talks more about like being a true, true beginner because that was my first time. Um, I grew up in big cities, Manhattan and London specifically, and never did anything in the dirt, really. Never did anything outdoorsy, anything in nature. That really just wasn't a part of my upbringing. I joke that the most outdoorsy thing my parents have ever done is drink wine and eat dinner on a patio. <laughs> and that's like really not too far from the truth. So yeah, this really wasn't anything that I was familiar with. Uh, when I set out to do the Oregon section of the PCT, which is 460 miles, prior to that, I had been car camping once for one night and backpacking once for two nights in essentially the two months leading up to that trip. Those were just little test trips that I did to you know, try my gear and not have like literally my first night of camping be on trail, but I mean, it might as well have been. Uh, so yeah, I, I was... I was super new. Um, and last year's hike, if, if you have been in my sort of corner of the internet for that long, you know that I was completely miserable. It was the hardest and scariest thing that I had ever done, like by far. It was so far outside my comfort zone. It was a huge ego beating, really humbling in lots of ways. I was the newest and slowest person of all the hikers that I met out there. And yeah, it was really hard. I, When I finished that hike, I was convinced that I would never do anything even remotely like that that again. I seriously, I was like, take all this gear, burn it to the ground, never going to do this again. And I don't know, I guess be careful what you say. I don't know. It's like, I have friends who love through hiking and, you know, I've immersed myself in sort of that community and culture through reading so many trail blogs and memoirs. Um, the best of which being by my friend, Carrot Quinn, um, her book through hiking will break your heart was really what got me into this life to begin with. She's been on the show. My friend, Zach Davis, He's been on the show and that, you know, them and people that I've met through them, they'd love it so much. And I don't know, in a lot of ways, 
long distance hiking seems like such a good fit activity and lifestyle for me. I don't like a lot of material stuff. I genuinely love doing hard things. I love pushing myself. I like to push the boundaries of what I believe is possible for me. Uh, I love the idea of any kind of like a pilgrimage or quest type journey. I really do love being in nature. So <laughs> it's like all of the, 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 the elements were there and yet I had such a miserable time. And so I decided this year that I would try again. I would do one more long distance hike just to get a better sense of whether or not this was for me. I think sometimes when you do something that's so beyond your comfort zone and like so hard that I don't know, like the first time can often not be, I think the best indication of what it would be like next time or the time after that. And I just felt like, okay, let me just do this one more time, set more realistic expectations because I learned a ton last year. I, you know, I have slightly more experience, still have a ton of fears for sure, but I thought, let me just do this one more time and see if I'm, if I end this second hike feeling like, you know, screw this. I never want to do this again. Fine. Then I'll be done. But I had a feeling that that wouldn't be what happened. Um, and surprise, surprise, I was right. So <laughs> we'll get into all that. But yeah, I mean, even though it was my second time, I still had tons of fears. The main fears being pain. I mean, physical discomfort. I was in so much pain on my first hike. That was really the limiting factor. Um, I think it was the wrong shoes. I wound up switching shoes. I didn't do enough training. Just in general, I wasn't used to carrying a pack. The whole thing, just like physically, I was so uncomfortable. And when you're hiking, you know, eight to 10 hours a day and you're having, let's say, a lot of foot pain, for example, and literally every single step hurts, it's really hard to enjoy yourself to get outside of that when literally every single step over hundreds and thousands and, you know, millions or whatever steps is painful. So I was really afraid of the pain. Um, with the Arizona trail specifically, this was an interesting trail to choose and I'll get into a little bit why I chose it. But my, uh, one of my fears that was specific to this trail was solitude and loneliness. Cause I did my hike last year solo as in like, I didn't go with anyone else, but the PCT is pretty heavily used, especially during, you know, August in Oregon, which is when I was there, I met tons of through hikers, you know, people who were doing the whole trail, you know, I would meet five, six, seven, ten people per day sometimes, um, sometimes less, but, you know, I camped alone a bunch of times, but then I also would often have people to camp with, you know, over the 26 days of that trip. So, you know, this time from what I had heard that the Arizona trail was not as heavily traveled, especially, uh, this time of year. So I was expecting, you know, to go multiple days without seeing anyone. And I've never done that in my life. And so I was really afraid, am I going to be so lonely? What's that going to be like? I was afraid of the water scarcity. Uh, obviously, Arizona Trail, it's mostly desert, and I knew that water was a big issue on that trail, again, more so in the fall than in the spring, which is when I did it. So I was afraid of, you know, am I going to find enough water? The experience of having a ration water, anxiety about water, the physical experience of being thirsty, am I going to be able to handle carrying four to five plus liters of water? That's really heavy. So just everything sort of like in the realm of water, I felt really afraid of. And sort of overall, I was afraid that maybe I'm not strong enough, I'm not tough enough, I'm not resilient enough to do this hike. Uh, I had such a hard time last year that I didn't really know what to expect. And, you know, objectively, the Arizona Trail is much harder than the Oregon section of the PCT. And, you know, so going into it, I was afraid, honestly, that I wouldn't be able to do it. And that was a huge part of why I actually wanted to do it and why I chose this trail. 
I decided to do this hike because I didn't believe that I could do this hike, which I don't know, maybe that sounds strange, but I've always felt trapped by perfectionism. I don't like things that I'm not good at, which often holds me back from doing new things, from trying new things. And, you know, uh, the fear of failure or not being good or what are people going to think? Like I can get really wrapped up in all of that. So there was something really appealing to me about you know, publicly committing to try this trail that I legitimately didn't think that I was going to be able to finish. And I I felt like there was a benefit for me of putting myself in a situation where there was such a high possibility of failure. I mean, obviously I did complete the trail, which, which is wonderful, but the fact that I really wasn't sure about it and that I did it anyway, that felt like important and necessary growth step for me. So on September 23rd, I flew to Utah. I got a ride to the Utah, Arizona border which is in the middle of nowhere, essentially. Um, And I started this 800-mile hike. So, okay, let's take some questions. Hi, I'm Gina from Minneapolis. In a previous podcast, you mentioned how um, you and Paul have had many conversations about you leaving to go on a hike for, you know, a month, two months, or more at a time, and how he's super supportive and it works for you too. And my question is, anything you can share that got you guys to that point, like shifts that you make in your home life or conversations behind the scenes. I'm so interested in this um, because my husband and I have a similar situation. Um, We both like to travel. We both do it separately and together. Um, But I think it would be hard if he was gone or if I was gone for a month or more. But I can see myself wanting to be gone for a month or more. So selfishly, I just want to know kind of how you guys got there. Thanks so much, Nicole. Oh, yeah, this is such a good one. Um, I've gotten this question in different forms from a lot of different people, too. So I'm happy to talk about this. Um, Okay, so obviously I can't speak on behalf of Paul, my husband, but I can talk about sort of the conversations that we had and what has worked for us. I think even though I was new last year uh, to long distance hiking specifically. I think with Paul, this wasn't completely unexpected. I mean, maybe the outdoor nature of it. Yeah. But I've never lived an entirely traditional life. I've never worked a nine to five year round job. I've always prioritized adventure and freedom over stability and putting down roots, you know, even basically my entire adult life. I've talked about that a little bit on different episodes of the podcast, but, you know, I would work seasonal jobs, you know, where it's a ridiculous amount of hours a day, but not for the whole year. I would work, you know, multiple different jobs at a time to also pursue something creative on the side. I've worked for myself in different capacities for a long time, you know, supported myself, all of that, but never through anything really traditional. So, I mean, even like extending to lifestyle stuff, if it were entirely up to me, we probably wouldn't own a house for almost my entire adult life. Everything that I owned could fit in my Honda Civic. So while long distance hiking itself was a new development over the past year and a half, my desire to leave home and do a non-traditional thing, I think wasn't unexpected for Paul. In a lot of ways, I think he knew what he was getting into (laughs) in marrying me. So that helped. I think it would have been harder if it was like a complete departure from maybe his expectations. I mean, which isn't to say that it was easy and effortless. It definitely wasn't. We had a series and continue to have, you know, ongoing long conversations just about how to make this as smooth as possible for both of us and especially, you know, leading up to to this hike. 
I mean, basically the question that I always go back to when trying to reach some sort of a compromise um, with another person is, you know, asking what would have to be true for you to feel awesome about this. And so that was really the starting point. You know, once he started to realize, okay, she wants to do another hike and, you know, he was really supportive of that. But of course he obviously was anxious too, because I was miserable last year and he knew that. And he was kind of like, you know, I love you and you were so unhappy and why do you want to do this again? And, you know, so we talked through that, but that question of what would have to be true for you in order, you know, for you to feel awesome about this and some of the specific things that came up, you know, he said, I definitely want you to bring your spot device again, you know, the personal locator beacon, just in case there's some kind of an emergency, for example. Okay. That was easy. Um, and then for me too, like I, I gave myself a chance to weigh in on what would have to be true for me to feel awesome because I felt guilty about leaving. You know, I had some, some reoccurring feelings of, am I a bad partner, you know, for, for leaving for six weeks, you know, leaving him in charge of everything he's normally in charge of everything I'm normally in charge of. Plus he has to be my logistical and emotional support person. So, you know, I made him promise that he would make social plans every week, um, and not just, you know, introvert all the time and and be at home, you know, alone and, and sad. Um, so that was something that was important to me that even though I would be gone, that he would still be, you know, making an effort to see people and do things. Um, it was important to him that I would check in as often as possible, you know, so we just sort of uh, had a conversation about logistically, practically, what would have to be true in order for us to both feel better about this. Um, But I think the larger issue that we've had to work through is a general difference in individual lifestyle preferences. He has no desire to do long-term travel. You know, he wouldn't want to spend months living out of a camper van on some kind of road trip. Um, He's not interested in living really in an alternative, you know, small dwelling, all of which I think are things that would be super interesting to me or that at least I would love to try. Maybe I would hate them. Who knows? But I've always been more sort of like that. And he doesn't really have an interest in being away from home for more than a week, you know, max. And his job, you know, the career that he's chosen, the choices that he's made align with that. He, you know, works from home, but works, you know, a more traditional job, loves it. All he wants to do is do that and, you know, ride his bike and race his bike and ski and, you know, like do, do the things that are kind of central to our home area, which is awesome. Like that's, that's great for him that those are the the choices that he wants, but where does that leave me? Because it's something that we've struggled with is, or something that I've struggled with is just because his choices fit the societal norm, nor more than mine do, it doesn't necessarily mean that there are better choices or that they're the right choices. So a lot of our conversations have been about how we can have a happy marriage that honors his needs for you know, stability and sort of being in one place and also honors my needs for adventure and freedom, You know, knowing that there's no scenario in which he's going to come on a long distance hike with me. He would be miserable. And I wouldn't want him to, because that's not, you know, what he would want to do. And, you know, the same on the flip side, he doesn't want to force me to stay home, you know, all year long if that's not what I want to do. So it really, as much as being apart during the hikes, you know, is hard. And I know he's worried about me and I miss him. Me doing these hikes on my own has been a huge piece of solving that larger puzzle of the differences in our preferences. So it's in that regard, it's actually been pretty awesome. Um, Another conversation that we had leading up to the Arizona trail hike, you know, with me thinking, oh, is it okay that I'm going to be gone, you know, in the fall? And this hike specifically was in the fall, but most long distance hiking would probably be in the summer. And, you know, we were both feeling like, well, isn't summer the time that, you know, most times like couples and families are together and doing stuff outside. And that seems to be a very like togetherness time. And that's never really been true for us. Um, Summer is when he's training hardest for cyclocross season. And now, you know, for me with hiking. So we had a conversation that was really freeing where 
we sort of decided that winter is going to be the on season for our relationship, really, as opposed to summer and early fall when we're both pursuing our own things. I mean, not to say like, of course, obviously we're still married, you know, during the fall or whatever, but, um, you know, we decided to lean into that. You know, this is this idea that this is our marriage. We can configure it any way we want. And if that means that winter is the time that we spend, you know, most of our time together and, you know, do the together things and other times of year, we do more separate things. So far, that feels pretty good. And, you know, on the hike, we missed each other for sure. But it's been interesting. Our relationship since I've been home has actually been better. It's sort of that cliche of not taking each other for granted as much after time apart. And cliches are cliche for a reason, right? But, I mean, also, we've had a lot of fun since I've been back planning and enjoying, you know, our season now that winter is here. We hosted a really big Thanksgiving. That's something that we love doing. You know, we're hosting a holiday party, cooking lots of soups, baking things, going to play in the snow, coming home, making hot chocolate, watching new movies and fun shows together. So it's been nice, like being apart during that time gives us a bit of separateness and, you know, we're, we're making it work. Obviously it's, it's easier because I work for myself part-time and, you know, so have some job flexibility. So being gone isn't really as much of a stress financially or work-wise. Um, and obviously we don't have kids, you know, so there's a lot of factors at play that make this easier for him and I to work through together, but it's really just a series of evolving conversations. And, you know, that will be definitely true this year, especially now after the Arizona trail, now that I know that this is something that I do want to keep doing, you know, we have to have more conversations because it's, it's, I think easier to get someone on board for a one and done, you know, I'm going to do this once and get it out of my system, you know, and, but now that this is something that potentially I want to do, you know, every year, or at least, you know, until it stops being interesting, um, there'll, there'll be some more conversations to have. You know, I've been thinking a lot about southbounding the PCT, but Paul isn't sure if he's ready for me to be gone for four months. And like, that's fair. I need to respect that. We're talking about it. You know, I never want him to default into being supportive because that's what he thinks he should do. You know, I don't want either of us to feel guilty or resentful. And I think that for us, just continued honesty is key, even if it involves admitting feelings that we're ashamed to have. Right. Um, so yeah, that's really what has, what has worked for us. Um, and you know, as it continue, as the conversations continue to evolve, I'm of course happy to talk more about it. All right. Next question. Hi, Nicole. My name is Mercedes, and my question is, how did your packing and preparation improve or change now that it's your second go? Any lessons learned? Oh, yeah. Now, the second time around, logistically, things were a lot easier. I think what one of the things that made last year's hike so hard was that everything was new. You know, not only was it a new experience to hike, you know, 20 plus miles a day every day, like that in and of itself was was huge. It was new for me. Camping was new. Setting up a tent was new. Living out of this bag was new. Filtering water was new. Trying to figure out, you know, in advance what I would want to eat. That was new. Like everything was so new and I really didn't have confidence in anything. So this year, the fact that a lot of the logistical stuff I had more experience in, that was so much easier. I felt way less stressed about gear and food this time around. I mostly knew what I wanted to eat. I had a much better idea of the gear that I wanted to bring. I did wind up making uh, some key gear changes. Uh, Specifically, I brought a larger pack than last year to accommodate the additional water weight that I would have to carry. Um, And I brought a lighter tent to cut down on pack weight, both of which turned out to be awesome choices. And overall, I was really thrilled about all of my gear. So as far as like that type of packing preparation, um, you know, it was, it was nice to have the experience from last year. As far as food goes, I brought a lot of the same things as last year. The only sort of question mark in my food was I brought 
granola that this actually turned out to be kind of a disaster. This was my, my, my food mistake, but you know, I prepackaged granola with, um, powdered coconut milk and flax and chia and dried fruit. And I, it, when you added water to it, I don't know, it's just like, it was kind of disgusting. It was like kind of gloopy. It was, I don't know. Anyway, this was obviously like a small problem because it was easy enough to supplement, you know, my resupply boxes and bring a couple of extra things in place of the granola. Cause it got to the point that I like literally couldn't eat it. It was so disgusting. Um, so, you know, that was a small thing, but, um, you know, uh, that, that was much, the food was much easier this time around. I also put a really big emphasis on finding shoes that were better for me after I had so much foot pain last year. Uh, last year I wore ultras, which are some of the most popular shoes on trail. And it was a really good lesson to learn that just because something is popular and it's something that works for a lot of people doesn't mean that it's going to work for you. And so I thought, okay, this year, if I can have less foot pain, that will make this hiking way less miserable. So I wound up trying a bunch of different shoes and settling on uh, the Brooks Calderas. And those worked really well for me. I, I went through them pretty quickly on the trail just because the Arizona trail is so rocky and it like <laughs> eats through your shoes essentially. Um, but that was, you know, a, a huge change that wound up, you know, being really beneficial. In terms of planning the actual hiking itinerary, I had a much better idea of how many miles per day I could do, and I knew that I would likely want to do half days into or out of town. So I didn't I didn't know that last year. I thought, oh, I would just, you know, do a full day of hiking, get to town, you know, take care of the chores that I need to do in town and then, you know, leave the next morning. Um, but town chores, you know, laundry and doing your resupply and everything and showering, it, it takes more time than you'd think. And so I was much better prepared this year to plan, okay, you know, I, I'll want to set it up so that I do, you know, eight to 12 miles going into town. So I have, you know, the whole afternoon to do stuff and then leave the next morning or vice versa, get into town a little late and not leave until, you know, 11 AM the next day or something. So that, um, that was a change that I made this time around. I also planned in the time to take more rest days. I took four zero days overall. I definitely didn't give myself enough rest time last year. So that was also very helpful. Like, yes, you're doing this really hard physical thing. You need rest. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. Um, Let's see, what else was different this year? Uh, my physical preparation and training was a lot different. I didn't really train that much last year because I honestly was just like so overwhelmed by everything. I did some hiking for sure, but I didn't do that many long hikes. I definitely didn't do that many hikes with my full pack weight. And um, this year I did a lot more training. Uh, unfortunately, the my fitness got derailed in mostly August um, by the fires at Oregon was like, insanely on fire. Um, and the air quality was really hazardous, you know, didn't go outside, you know, almost for like a couple weeks and, you know, did some hiking on the treadmill. But if you're looking for the world's most boring activity, potentially hiking uphill with a pack on, on a treadmill for hours, (laughs) that, that is up there. Um, so yeah, I definitely did more physical prep and training, but looking ahead, that's something that I'm thinking of, you know, making some changes to as well. I feel like, uh, lessons, you know, now obviously I've done this twice. So looking ahead, like lessons learned for next time, I feel like my gear is pretty solidly dialed in. I don't think there are many changes, at least not any significant changes that I would make right now. Um, food wise, I never got sick of eating picky bars. (laughs) So I think I ate 90 picky bars on the Arizona trail and am still eating them now that I'm at home. So bringing a lot of picky bars, that was a good choice. Um, I also learned how important ease and convenience uh, of food is for me. All I want is for it to be 
easy. I want it to be simple to just like, you know, throw the food in my mouth. I don't want it to have to be some like big ordeal. I think that was part of what I didn't like about the granola. Like I had to add the water and, you know, eat it out of the bag. And then what do I do with the bag? And it's kind of like, I just want to throw something in my mouth. So I definitely learned that. Also, uh, what I thought was hiker hunger last year was nothing compared to the levels of hunger that I experienced this year. After, I mean, I think about 500, after about 500 miles with the tough terrain, my hunger was, I mean, it was, it was out of this world. It was like anything, it was unlike anything that I had ever experienced. So being prepared, more prepared for that, that, you know, the first week or so, first week or two, maybe I don't really want that much food. And then afterwards I really need to be, especially since I was sending myself resupply boxes, I need to be sending myself more food, higher calorie food, um, you know, after the, you know, 500 mile ish mark, maybe a little sooner, but yeah, hiker hunger was bananas this year. Um, yeah. And then I mentioned before wanting to do some different physical training. Um, my sort of thought on the physical preparation this year is to build to a higher overall fitness level in the winter and spring. That's one of the reasons that I'm back to running. And, you know, I feel like if I can maintain a really high level of fitness overall, you know, running and cross training and lifting weights and, you know, yoga, whatever other things. And then, you know, six ish weeks prior to leaving for a hike, switch into hike specific training, long hikes with a heavy pack, um, lots of elevation change. I think that's going to be the best approach for me because last year I was mostly either doing long hikes or doing nothing. And all of those long hikes, like sure hiking is the best way to prepare for hiking, but that, you know, if you're doing a 15, 18, 20 mile training hike, it's like your whole day and doing that multiple days a week, it's a big sacrifice, um, to the rest of your life. And also I did that for so long that I got kind of burned out actually on hiking that I think this year it's going to be a better approach to just try to maintain overall, like a lot of strength and fitness and then, um, you know, switch into specific hiking gear when it happens. So yeah, those are some thoughts on preparation. Okay. Amanda's question. Hi, Nicole. This is Amanda Turner. I'm talking to you from the beautiful Okanagan Valley in British Columbia. And my question is, what were you looking for out of your Arizona trail experience? Was it the same or different from your PCT hike? And did you find it? Or did you find something that you didn't know you wanted? Thanks so much for taking us along on your journey. Mm, Yeah, this is... This is a good question. Um, sort of hard to answer, but I have been doing a lot of sort of reflection and introspection about this. Um, the PCT hike, in a lot of ways, I was looking to replace running. Um, I've talked about this a bunch of times, as you might know, I quit drinking and started running on the same day, May 1st, 2011. Running was really sort of a way out of the drinking hole for me. It was, you know, somewhere to focus my energy and just, you know, to to essentially switch from being this like really public party girl into something else. And it was awesome. I mean, it, it let getting sober be possible for me. And I was super into running for four years and then kind of got burned out, I guess I would say. And, you know, for lots of reasons that I've talked about before in other episodes, but I think when I came to long distance hiking, I was hoping not necessarily to just completely replace running, but my life felt significantly emptier without the pursuit of a hard physical goal. Running had always given me that. Training for races was a really good anchor for me. It kept me grounded, um, was also helpful mental health wise because it kept me doing a lot of exercise, which was really good for me. Um, 
you know, with depression. And, you know, so I was looking for something hard to do for a new challenge. And, you know, I certainly got that. I certainly got a new challenge. Um, with the Arizona trail, I, uh, I chose the Arizona trail. Well, so originally I was going to do the Washington section of the PCT and I was going to do that starting in early August, but this year was a really high snow year. And, you know, I was essentially really freaking myself out, just like obsessively looking at how much snow there was. And I have no experience with snow hiking and with that kind of, you know, uh, travel mountaineering avalanche stuff, you know, using an ice axe, any of that. And I was really getting in my head about it. And I was feeling like maybe that wasn't the best hike for me to do. In retrospect, I think that it probably would have been fine. You know, the snow, en- enough snow melted. But um, in early June and mid June, um, I was just spinning out on it a lot. And I thought, okay, well, if I can't do this, what else am I going to do instead? And, you know, I was on the fence about whether or not I was going to do that hike. And then, um, I wound up going to London in August. Uh, one of my best friends, Kate Grace, who's been on the show, uh, she's a professional runner and she made the, um, U S team for the track and field world championships, which was in London. And I hadn't been back to London in 18 years since I used to live there. And, you know, I really wanted to go and I really wanted to support her. And the timing of that trip was the same timing that I would have left for Washington. So once I decided to go to London, that was sort of the, the decision-making factor of, okay, I need to choose a different hike. And then just logistically, I started looking at other fall hiking options of which there aren't that many, um, in North America obviously because the weather starts to turn and, you know, you want to not be in really snowy areas, you know, once the snow comes and all of that. Um, I was looking at the Superior Hiking Trail in Minnesota. That was an option. And obviously I was looking at the Arizona Trail. The Arizona Trail, so most people who do Arizona do it northbound, like from Mexico to Utah in the spring because um, the winter snow melt during that time of year means that there's a lot more water than there is um, in the fall. But people usually either go northbound in the spring or southbound in the fall. And once I started reading more and more about the trail, I don't know, like the fact that it was so hard and that it seemed so crazy, there was like this feeling that I got. It happens sometimes for me, it's like a, a, when like a crazy seeming idea just gets under your skin and you can't shake it. You know, you know what that's like when you're just like, that would be totally impossible. I couldn't do this, but maybe I could do this. No, I can't do this. What would it be like to do this? It's, it's hard to explain. But once I read about how tough the Arizona trail is, I wanted to experience it. I wanted to test myself against it. It was not even logical. It just like got into my head, it got under my skin. And, you know, anytime I thought about, oh, well, you know, it would be a smarter choice to do the superior hiking trail. It would be a smarter choice, you know, to maybe do the long trail in Vermont, like some of these other trails that were shorter, that were, you know, that I knew there was going to be more water, but I don't know. I, I couldn't shake this idea. And so that's kind of, I mean, how I picked it was that that was the one that I wanted to do the most. And when, for me, when I'm doing something that's as hard as long distance hiking is, and where it is going to be a real struggle on a lot of days to keep going, because physically and mentally it is so hard, I need to have it be something that I really, really want. And for whatever reason, I wanted to complete this trail. So what was I hoping to get out of it? Um, like I said, I, I did this trail because I didn't think that I could do this trail. So just having that experience is something that I wanted to get out of it. But I was also looking for clarity on whether this is an activity that I want to add to my life going forward. Um, you know, like I said, when I finished last year, I was like, nope, never again, never doing this again. And yet I thought that that maybe actually wasn't true. So I was hoping that by doing a second hike that I would have an idea coming out of it of whether or not, um, you know, I want to lean more into this outdoorsy wilderness nature stuff. Um, 
there were a couple of the reasons, you know, why I felt pulled to do this. Um, one was because I do, as this sounds, well, not just it sounds privileged, it is privileged. I feel really stifled often by the comfort of modern life. Um, I've recently realized that the opposite of courage isn't fear, it's comfort. Um, and I want to be someone who regularly chooses courage over comfort in all areas of my life, whether that's, you know, in my work, in my activism or volunteering, in my relationships, in my personal development. There's a quote that I love by Annie Dillard where she says, you can't test courage cautiously. Um, and so that was a big part of it for me that, okay, if I want to be more courageous, like I have to actually be it, I have to actually do it. I can't just think about it. And so that was, that was definitely a factor. Um, I love the simplicity of hiking. That was, um, another thing, actually, perhaps one of the biggest things, like the fact that life is drilled down into its most essential components, walk from point A to point B, find water, don't die. <laughs> There's something that I find to be immensely powerful about having that kind of singular sense of purpose that I've never been able to replicate in off-trail life. Um, the, it's coming out of the, of, of the Arizona Trail, that was probably the thing that I took away the most, like how excellent it was to wake up every day and be like, okay, my entire everything revolves around walking as you know far as I can toward Mexico and staying alive. <laughs> like obviously there's other things that fall under that umbrella, you know, things that you have to do each day, but being really clear on that sort of purpose and goal and direction was awesome. And then I think the last thing, this, you know, there's such a, curiosity, I mean, age old curiosity, just about the world and the desire to explore it. I think that's something that a lot of people share in different capacities. And before I set out on this hike, I kept finding myself daydreaming about, I don't know, what would it be like out in the wilderness of Arizona? How would it feel to be in that landscape? I'm really not familiar that much with the desert. You know, what would it be like to walk, you know, with all the cacti all day, every day? What would it be like to stand at the bottom of the Grand Canyon? Uh, like that, I kept coming back to thoughts like that. And so part of my desire to do this hike was just curiosity, right? Um, and looking back now, trying to sort of process what I got out of this, I feel like the biggest thing is more confidence, which I think can also easily sound cliche, but I do have a much deeper, more unshakable confidence in myself. I had this moment, it was the final morning on trail when I was, I think maybe five miles from, from Mexico. And I realized that you know, so often you hear about people doing hard things with this sort of energy of, you know, I got to prove all the haters wrong. Everyone who didn't believe in me, like I'm going to prove them wrong. And I, I realized that that's never been my experience. I am really grateful to have so much support and so many people and friends and family and, you know, all of you guys, like everyone believed in me for this hike. And it, so it wasn't that I was trying to prove anyone else wrong. It was that I didn't believe in myself. It was a sort of like I had to prove myself wrong. And I don't know why, but that felt really powerful to me to realize that like I had all the support. I had all the belief. It was me. Like I was the one who didn't believe in myself, but I do now. Um, I don't know. I talk a lot about the fact that we can do hard things. That's sort of like a life philosophy for me. And I've always believed that to be true, but I believe it in a different way now. Like I believe it, I, I believe that I can do hard things. I believe it in my soul. I believe it in the hundreds and hundreds of miles, you know, that are now in my legs. The way that I felt when I reached the Southern Terminus um, on the Arizona-Mexico border at the end of the trail, 
I felt like, I don't know, this like overwhelming sense of no matter what, no one can take this away from me. Like I did this. I did this obviously with the support of other people for sure. No solo thing is ever done completely alone, but also I did this alone. I was the one who carried all of my stuff and carried all of that water and dealt with being so thirsty and being so lonely. And it was so hard. And yeah, no matter what happens that no one can ever take that away from me. And that makes me feel more confident that, yeah, I I can, I can do hard things. So that's definitely something that I got out of it. The thing I'd say that I got out of that hike that I honestly wasn't expecting was more of a belief in the importance of the work that I do. I've struggled a lot the last couple of years, um, with, how do I want to put this? Um, I think it's easy when you're in a partnership, right? Like I look at my husband and he has more of a traditional job and, you know, so it's very clear, like people pay him to do X, right? And that there's a really clear, I don't know, it's really clearly outlined. And for someone like me who does something that's maybe less concrete, like this podcast, like the writing that I do, um, I don't know, it's easy not to value that as much to feel like, oh, this isn't really that important or, oh, you know, like to just kind of be self-deprecating about it or not that confident. And I I don't know why, but through the course of the hike, specifically the daily writing that I was doing and the feedback that I was getting from people, I don't know. I just feel like even though maybe it's less tangible to sort of explain what it is that I do with the podcast and with the live events and with this idea of sort of real talk and honesty and bringing people together, you know, that's easier or harder, I guess, to explain than like, Oh, you know, I work at a bookstore or I'm a web designer or I do, you know, any, any, I don't know why those were my two choices, but, um, you know, something like that, it might be harder to explain, but I really came out of this hike feeling like this work is important and necessary. I don't know why that hit me so hard, but I came out of the hike feeling like this work is important and I'm the one to do it. And I feel like I have a stronger belief in myself as a writer after, you know, doing that daily writing and every single day. And that's something that I really want to lean into in 2018. So yeah, that was totally unexpected, but it was a a great surprise. All right. um, Next question. Hello, my name is Julia. My question is, when you hike the AZT, if you could do it all again, what is the one thing and only one thing you would change? Ooh, okay. Um, If I could change one thing, this is very specific to the Arizona Trail, like to this hike at this time of year. But if I were to do this exact hike again, I would wear pants during the section between um, Pine and Superior. Um, most of that section is what's known as the Matazals, Matazals, Mazatzals. I don't know how to pronounce it. Everyone pronounces it differently. But that was the section that was the most overgrown. Um, it was, I don't even know how to describe the experience of hiking through basically like really sharp, thorny bushes, cacti, where you're literally just like getting ripped up. Like your skin is just getting completely destroyed. I was basically just like covered in blood at the end of a lot of days in that section. And I remember one particularly overgrown part. Most of the overgrowth was waist height or lower, which is why I'm saying that I would have worn like thicker, sturdy pants. Like, yes, I would have been hotter, but oh my God, to not be bleeding, you know, like all day and like have that kind of pain and not just the pain, but like the frustration of there was no way to walk around it. There was nowhere else to go. Like, this is the way that the trail goes. You're on like a ridge or something and you, there's no other option and you just have to 
take it. You have to walk through this like unbelievable overgrown section. There was one part where the overgrowth was high, taller than me, like the branches and everything. It was not, you know, waist height. It wasn't shoulder height. It was above my head. And I literally had to pack up my trekking poles, like put them in my bag uh, so that I could use my hands to cup them over my eyes to protect my eyes while I used literally my full body weight and strength to push myself through the thorns. Like that's how heavily overgrown it was. And I, w- I mean, I was just screaming, like literally top of my lungs, like guttural raw screaming as, you know, it's cutting into you. It's ripping your clothes. Uh, the thorns are getting stuck in your feet. It was, oh my God, that was definitely one of the hard- hardest parts of the trail. And so if I were to do it again, I would wear pants during that section. I would send myself pants in pine and then I would send them home in superior. And that would have made a huge difference in my morale during that section. Um, but if we're talking sort of more generally, the one thing that I would want to change for my next hike, um, would be acquiring more skills, um, you know, map and compass use, uh, orienteering navigation in general, being better at recognizing animal tracks and signs, um, snow hiking skills, if, if I'm going to do that, um, maybe even backcountry medicine, first aid. I, I feel like so much of my fears are related to lack of experience. I think that that's, you know, common. We often are afraid of things that we don't really know. And, you know, yeah, I made it through this hike and I gained more experience through doing it, but, uh, given that this is something that I want to keep doing, the one change that I would want to make is leveling up in my skills because the more you know how to do, the more confident you are, the better time you can have. So yeah, that's definitely something that I want to change. Hey, Nicole, this is Joel from Milwaukee, and I've got a question for you. How did you overcome doubt? Did you have a doubt you could finish it or do it? That's my question. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> Did I ever doubt that I could do it? Um, I doubted it literally every single second, all the time, every day. It was so much doubt. I was on the Arizona Trail for 44 days, and it was basically doubt palooza. <laughs> um, I said this before, but the main reason that I wanted to do this hike is because I didn't believe that I could do this hike. And so doubt is obviously a huge part of that. I didn't believe that I could do it. So I feel like this hike was less about overcoming doubt because honestly, I did not overcome doubt. It wasn't until I had this really clear memory when I was hiking the road into the town of Patagonia, Patagonia was my last resupply point. It's 51.2 miles from Patagonia to Mexico. And so when I was a couple miles outside of Patagonia, right, had hiked, whatever, 750 miles, had like 50 miles left. That was the first time that I actually believed that I would be able to complete the hike. So, you know, the first, I don't know, 700 plus miles, I was legitimately doubting it every second, all the time, every day. Um, So I think that it was less about overcoming doubt and more about managing doubt, learning how to feel doubt and fear and move forward anyway. Um, Yeah. So what helped me to do that? Um, A couple of things. These are, I guess, like specific tools or tactics, you could call them, that were that were really impactful for me. I started early on doing something that I think of as 20 seconds of intense bravery or 20 seconds of insane bravery, however you want to say it. Oftentimes the things that I, when I was feeling doubt, when I was feeling fear, it was because I was like forward projecting too much. Like I'd be, you know, laying in my sleeping bag in the morning and it would be freezing and, oh, I don't want to get out of the sleeping bag. It's going to be so cold. And then I have to pack up and, oh, I'm so tired and I don't want to hike and it's going to be such a long day and I have to ration water. And, you know, I would just go, go, go like really so far down the spiral. And I would think, Okay. Deep breath. What if I could just be really brave for 20 seconds? Because 20 seconds isn't 
a long time and you can be brave. Anyone can be brave for 20 seconds. But if I'm brave for 20 seconds, essentially then like the ball will be in motion. The momentum will have started. And then, um, that kind of carries you through. So, you know, I would literally say, okay, 20 seconds of intense bravery to get out of my sleeping bag. And I would count in my head, like literally count the 20 seconds to get out of my sleeping bag in the freezing morning to change into my hiking clothes, you know, put the sleeping bag in the stuff sack or the trash bag rather that I used and, you know, shove it in my packs. So that was no longer an option to get back into the sleeping bag. And that only took 20 seconds sometimes. And, but that was enough. Cause then at that point, well, I'm wearing my hiking clothes, the sleeping bags put away. I'm going to obviously keep going. Um, this would happen when I was in town to resupply or to rest. And I was getting a ride, you, you know, from a trail angel back to the trailhead. Um, you know, just that active, you know, getting out of their car, you know, it was safe and comfortable in the car. And if I wanted to quit, then I could have, and they could have taken me back to town and there was so much comfort in town. And so I would think, okay, 20 seconds of bravery, get out of their car and they will drive away in, in the space of 20 seconds. And then you'll be alone at the trailhead. What are you going to do? You're going to start hiking. So for me, that tactic of, okay, just be brave for 20 seconds, you know, and I think about that a lot in off trail life too. You know, if I need to send an email that I've been putting off the 20 seconds that it, you know, push the send button that takes less than 20 seconds. If I need to have a hard conversation with someone, get out the first sentence, like start the conversation. I think this for me applies to a lot of different stuff. Like just do those 20 seconds. Um, I also relied on mantras a lot. I was completely alone out there. I, over the course of my hike, I met two other hikers, one I met on day four and then didn't see again. And one I met in the town of Oracle, which is when I had about what, 200 miles left, I think, if I'm remembering that correctly. So about, you know, three quarters of the way done. And he and I leapfrogged for a few days. So we'd hike together, you know, for an hour here, a few hours here, um, you know, camped in a similar location one night. But really, other than those tiny little, like, you know, interludes of other people, I was alone. Didn't see another human being for two days, three days, four days at a time. And, you know, so for me, one, I mean, being alone a lot sort of makes you crazy and like the, you get real weird out there. But I found that talking to myself, you know, using mantras really helped. I would often find myself just repeating, you're strong, you're tough, you can do this over and over, especially on scary or hard downhill sections, you know, where the rocks were really loose and slippy and I was moving really slow and I was afraid and frustrated. Um, so when I was doubting my ability, you know, to get down that hill, I would just either in my head or out loud, just you're strong, you're tough, you can do this, like over and over and over. That was helpful. Um, and trying to change my perspective, like repeatedly telling myself that we're not given challenges that are too big for us to handle, that surprisingly was really helpful. Um, the days that I could get myself to believe that, like saying, okay, if this hard thing or this thing that I'm doubting is what's in front of me, then that means that I can find a way to get through it. That, that helped a lot. Um, what else to manage doubt, um, realizing that for me, self-doubt is often tied into my personal preferences. Like for example, times where I was like, Oh, I really wish that the trail was less rocky. I wish that it wasn't so hot, so cold, so steep, so overgrown. Because for me, when I'm unhappy with the conditions, it's 
because I'm usually doubting my ability to handle those conditions, you know, so for me saying, I wish the trail was less rocky, it was this sort of like creeping doubt of, can I hike all these miles if it's this rocky? Can I do this if it's this hot, if I'm so thirsty or if it's so cold, if it's this steep, like, do I have this ability? So I tried often unsuccessfully, like, don't get me wrong. This was definitely easier said than done, but I tried to be as neutral as possible about the conditions and just hike the trail that was in front of me. I would say that to myself over and over, like, just hike the trail as it's presented, hike the trail that you come to. This is the trail that you're given this idea that like the conditions can't change. So I'm the one who has to adjust for sure. Easier said than done. I still have a long way to go on this, but you know, the times that it was (laughs) that I could do it (laughs) were definitely really helpful. Um, And then the last thing I think as far as overcoming doubt, or like I said, managing doubt, honestly, this might sound silly, but reading people's kind comments on Instagram was, it like carried me through this hike. I feel like when, when you don't believe in yourself, you can actually find a lot of strength in the belief of other people. There were a couple of times where I almost quit the trail and my community on Instagram was an enormous help in getting me to continue on. So, you know, that's, it was a great reminder for me of how important it is to take, you know, two seconds. It doesn't take long to leave someone an encouraging comment on Instagram or on a blog post or to text a friend or, you know, anything like that. But to like, we think that, oh, this person already has a hundred comments. Like my comment doesn't matter or whatever, but it does. Like I literally read every single comment. And every time I tapped the little, you know, heart next to the comment to let the person know that I liked it, that was really me saying, oh my God, thank you so much. This meant so much to me. Like you're pulling me through this like hellhole thing that I am so doubtful about. So yeah, Instagram was really helpful. Oh yeah, I guess the, the <laughs> recapping all of that, I didn't realize how much that I sort of had to do on a daily basis to overcome doubt. But yeah, that was a good question. Hi, Nicole, this is Kelly, and I was wondering what you thought was harder, the psychological or the physical aspects of the hike. Do you feel like having a hiking companion would have made any of it easier? Thanks for taking the time to answer my question, and I can't wait to hear the episode. Huh. Um, Okay. I think that the hardest elements of the Arizona Trail for me were how rocky it was. Like, I can't even... It was... Like the rocks were so jagged. Like all I wanted to do was just walk on actual trail, but no, it was just rocks, rocks, rocks forever. Uh, That was really hard. The lack of water was really hard and the intense solitude. I feel like those three things, how rocky it was, the water situation and the solitude were definitely the hardest. And the thing with long distance hiking is that I feel like the physical and the psychological are inseparable Um, because like, okay, so there's like the physical pain and frustration of having my entire body and all of my clothes torn up over and over again by, you know, the thorny overgrowth, you know, bushes, branches that are covering the trail. So that's, that's physically hard, but that takes a mental toll as well. And the same's true, you know, with the lack of water, there's the physical experience of being thirsty and of carrying a very heavy load of water. And then there's the mental and emotional anxiety of still having to ration that water because you don't know if there's going to be water at the next source. You know, it's just that constant fear of like, will there be enough water next time for me to fully replenish all my bottles? Am I drinking too much right now? Can I take, you know, the huge gulp of water that I want? So really everything that was hard physically was also hard mentally. Um, I, yeah, so huh, that's an, an, an interesting thing to think about, but yeah, I think that they were really inseparable. Everything that I found hard physically, I also found hard 
psychologically. And when I was having a hard time with something emotionally, it was usually based in something physical, um, you know, sleep deprivation. I have a really hard time sleeping on trail. Um, so, you know, being really tired, being really hungry once the hiker hunger kicked in, being really thirsty, all of that, um, you know, led to just how I felt emotionally too. Um, would having a hiking companion have made things easier? Um, essentially I feel like I had a hiking buddy twice. Um, I met this guy named Freebird in the town of Oracle and we leapfrogged for a couple of days, like I said, and then, you know, towards the end of the trail, Adam, my friend Adam came to visit for a few days. And in both of those times, I was so, so grateful to have someone to talk to and laugh with. The laughter, especially, um, those are the most fun moments on trail for me, or the most fun moments in life, right? When you have someone else to joke around and laugh with and commiserate with. And yet, honestly, for as lonely as I was, and the loneliness felt like physical pain, again, the like psychological, physical connection, I was so lonely. And yet, I didn't want a constant hiking partner. In some ways, it definitely would have been easier if I had someone else there, you know, not camping alone. That uh, nighttime was often when I was most afraid, you know, so stuff like that. But in other ways, I think that it would have been harder. I quickly came to realize that not having someone there to complain to means that you don't complain. You just get on with it. There's like, yes, it's it's kind of a double-edged thing because, yeah, it's, it's great to have someone to share an emotional burden with you when things are hard and to look to them for support. But when you don't have that, it makes you tougher. It makes you more resilient. And that was really what I was looking for from the trail. So for me personally, I feel like I wouldn't have gotten what I wanted out of this hike if I'd been with someone else, even though that meant feeling very, very lonely at times. But even that I think is good to experience. Like we need to be able to be uncomfortable. We need to be able to sit with ourselves. And it was so painful because it was so new because, you know, we are in this hyper-connected world and obviously relationships are so important and, you know, not to diminish any of that. But I think that I needed to go through that experience of completely relying on myself. Um, yeah. And so like going, looking forward, you know, sure, it would be nice to do a hike with a friend and it's not that I would be opposed to that, but I think that solo hiking, yeah, I think that's, I think that's the path for me. Hi, Nicole. My name is Julie. And my question is, what did you say to yourself to get you through those worst moments? Like when your brain and body tell you they are done, but some part of you knows you have to keep going. Thank you. Mm, Yeah. Um, (laughs) This makes me think of my first real on-trail breakdown in Arizona. Um, Was it day 10-ish, day 11, somewhere in there? Um, uh, there was this day where it was unbelievably windy. I was literally hiking into, you know, it must've been 15, 20 plus mile an hour headwinds that did not let up all day. I was hiking into the wind for over 10 hours. Um, there was no shelter from it. There were, you know, like no trees to block, like not, like it was just, the road was rutted and rocky and the landscape was completely dry. There was no water and it was over 10 hours of just hiking into the wind. And I absolutely lost it in the late afternoon, sat down on the side of the trail, sobbing. My feet were hurting. I had blisters. It was like, it was a complete meltdown, but what are you going to do in that situation? Right? Like you, you have to keep going. You know, what was I going to do? Sit there just forever. Like eventually you're going to run out of water. 
eventually you're going to run out of food. It's going to get dark. What you're going to try to set your tent up here in this completely exposed plane where the wind is just going to like batter you all night. It's an, it's an interesting thing. One of the things that surprised me the most about long distance hiking is that it's actually pretty easy to push yourself through the hardest moments because you don't have any other option. Like you need to find more water. You need to get to a safe spot to camp. You need to make it to town before you run out of food. So I found that's actually one of the things that I like about long distance hiking is that there isn't as much of like an internal argument of like, should I keep going or not? Where actually this question applies so much more to my regular life, right? Like I look at, you know, a habit I'm trying again to develop a regular writing habit, which is something that I have tried and failed to do over and over again over the last decade, probably more than a decade. And I'm trying again. And so like this question of like, what do you say to yourself like when you don't want to do it, when you're resisting the blank page, when you're like, oh, I could just do it tomorrow, I could put it off, you know, oh, I don't need to go running, I don't need to do this writing, you know, like it's a lot harder for me to push myself to do difficult things when I'm at home and I'm really comfortable because really I don't have to do them. I don't have to go running. I don't have to, you know, push myself to do, you know, more and more challenging creative work. I don't, you know, I don't have to do that. But with hiking, you do. So something that I have been hoping would happen if I continue doing hiking is that like whatever that part of your brain is that like just gets on with it, right? Like to not make everything such a big deal to be like, okay, like this is hard. You know, I want to be done, but I know that I like have to keep going. That's a skill that I would love to somehow take from trail life to off trail life. So I know this wasn't like exactly the question you were asking, but I, I do, I find it relatively easy, um, to keep going when it's hard, when there are no other options. Right. Um, but let me think, thinking about this a little bit more. So another on trail breakdown that I had in, um, I think it was the first full day in the Matazals, which is notoriously the toughest section of the Arizona Trail. Like that's known as the most brutal, brutal section. And I had reached the top of a particularly steep climb where it had been really overgrown and it was so hot and I didn't have that much water. And I was sitting down at the top of that climb crying, feeling like I absolutely cannot do this. Like, that's what I believed. I was like, I can't, I can't, I can't, it's too hard. I can't do this. And I remember saying to myself, okay, if you can't do this, then you need to become someone who can. And, um, I thought about that a lot since essentially like holding on to the belief that I could get stronger, not just over the course of the whole hike, but day by day or mile by mile, or even moment by moment, if I needed to, this idea that like, okay, you feel like you can't do this, then you need to become someone who can, and you need to become that person right now. Um, that, that was helpful for me in getting myself to, to push through. Um, I'm trying to think about, yeah, things like that, that are specific to answer your question. Um, let's see what else else to help to push me to keep going. Um, I didn't let myself do this often, but fantasizing about the finish, I think that it can be a double-edged sword to do that when you still have so far to go, right? Like if I still had 400 miles to go, like fantasizing about what it would feel like and how proud I would feel to finish, um, you know, maybe it felt good for like 10 minutes, but then it was like, oh, actually I still have the daily slog of this, um, you know, for 400 more miles. So, but sometimes I'd allow it and that would totally light me up especially in the days like getting closer and closer to the finish. And then sort of with that in mind, this idea of like not letting myself think about the finish too much, a lot of it had to do with the fact that I was trying not to only focus on the outcome. Like, sure, I wanted to complete the hike, but I wanted it to not be just all about the end result. Um, 
trying to be more present in the experience was really important to me, even if I was uncomfortable. And so a question that I would often ask myself when I was having a hard time is, okay, what if this were your last day on trail? Um, just sort of trying to be like, okay, if this were your last day, I don't know, you would just, I would be, if it were my last day on trail, I would be happier. I wouldn't necessarily be complaining so much. Like I would appreciate things more. And I didn't necessarily mean what if it was the last day, like, oh, what if you were finishing? Cause then you have like the excitement of finishing, but you never know if something's going to happen. You know, you could get injured at any point, something could happen that would pull you off trail. So, you know, if all of a sudden, what if tomorrow for whatever reason I had to be done, then I would want to appreciate this, take an extra second, you know, at the top of the climb to look out over the mountain range, like to just, I don't know, change my perspective a little bit to try to stay present and appreciate the full range of the experience, even when it sucks, even when it's hard. Um, Another question I love that I first heard from my friend Bryce um, is to ask yourself, okay, if this were a movie and you were the heroine, what would the audience want you to do? So in those like really hard moments where you're essentially choosing like to be brave or not be brave, I feel like it's really helpful in helping me to harness courage to get up and to do the hard thing and to keep going. If I think, okay, if this were a movie, you know, and, and I were the lead in this movie, what would the audience want me to do? Or if I was watching this movie, what would I want me to do? And to just get a little bit of distance. Um, not that, you know, I'm not, it's not to say to do something for an audience. It's not necessarily what I'm saying, but to, to Im- employ that tactic, to get yourself to have a little bit of distance and perspective from your own situation, from your own hard moment that can help. Um, Yet with this in mind, I thought about this a lot in terms of the role that social media, I mean, Instagram specifically played in this hike for me. And this was a question that I got from a couple of folks of, you know, if you couldn't share this on Instagram, would you still do it? Um, And like sort of this question of how does doing something so publicly change the experience? I think for me that it really added to it. I sure it's nice to disconnect, but for me, I loved telling the story of this while doing it, not just because it was so helpful to have other people's support, but it was like, definitely don't want to underestimate that. But it was also helpful for me to get through the tough moments if I thought about what I was doing like a story, like this idea. There's a book that I read earlier this year um, by Donald Miller. Um, Now I'm blanking on the title. I think it's called what a million miles in a thousand years or something like that. I don't know. I can, I can put the link in the show notes, but um Basically, he talks about the question of what makes a good life and sort of his theory is that the same thing that makes a good story is what makes a good life. And what makes a good story is really just simply when a character wants something and has to overcome obstacles to get it. Any book that we love, any movie that we love, you know, that that's essentially the heart of it, the heart of, you know, the hero's journey or whatever, that it's really clear, okay, this character wants X and they have to overcome all these things in order to get it. And that the, the, the there's this quote from the book that I brought with me on um, on trail where he says, here's the truth about telling stories with your life. It's going to sound like a great idea and you're going to get excited about it. And then when it comes time to do the work, you're not going to want to do it. People love to have lived a great story, but few people like the work it takes to make it happen. Joy costs pain. Now, I, I mean, I probably read that quote every day on my phone, like this idea that, you know, we love... Yeah, people love to have lived a great story, right? But 
what makes it a great story is that you had to overcome like a lot of hard things in order to get to the end of that story and that hard things are hard, right? So like when you're in the middle of it, when you're doing the work, like it's going to feel awful. And so it helped me to think about this hike, like as a story, not even necessarily a story that I was telling other people, but even just a story that I was telling like for myself or that was unfolding for myself, like this idea that, okay, joy costs pain. Um, that resonates with me a lot. And yeah, so I found that that was pretty helpful and that like really actually brings us right into our next question. Hi, Nicole. My name is Sonia. And my question is around why you keep doing these hiking trips where you're miserable and suffering all the time just to prove that you can survive it. I'm really wondering where it all ends. Do you keep doing harder and harder trips? Are you going to get to the point where you feel that you don't have anything else to prove and you're okay just going to do an easy and fun and relaxing hiking trip instead? Oh, this is one of my favorite questions. Um, because it's one that I thought about and asked myself, mm, yeah, every single day of this hike. Honestly, I don't think that I'm even now fully able to articulate my response um, to why I keep doing trips where I'm essentially miserable. Um, but I'm going to try. I'm going to try to talk about it. So the first thing that I want to talk about is the highs and lows that are just a natural part of doing a long distance hike, you can experience a widely intense range of deep emotions within one single day on trail, sometimes even within an hour. It can be the worst day you've ever had where all you want to do is quit and you're questioning everything and you doubt yourself and you're crying and you're miserable. And then something happens, the conditions change or your perspective changes, or you have one encounter with one really kind person who offers you a cold bottle of water. And all of a sudden it's the best day that you've ever had. Your emotions are really close to the surface. Um, and I mean, I guess, okay, I don't want to talk generally. I don't know what it's like for other people. For me, my emotions were really close to the surface. I was, because I was so sleep deprived and uh, raw and hungry and thirsty and like my primal needs. Like I was, it was such like this animal feeling that I had no filter really on my emotions. Like everything, I felt like a raw nerve the whole time. And that's just part of the experience, which, you know, and sometimes you're miserable, like you're miserable sometimes, just like how, you know, in life in general, like sometimes you're miserable. So I think that it's normal when you're doing something hard over an extended period of time that sometimes it's going to be the worst. And especially something like this, that's so physical and so demanding that you just feel your feelings really intensely. And this, this, I think it's a false belief that misery and joy are opposites or that they can't go together. They, I mean, they seem like opposites for sure, but in my experience, I think that misery or pain and joy are actually very related. It's the type one or type two fun thing that, um, has been brought up on the podcast before that, you know, type one fun is fun that's fun while you're having it, right? At a party, laughing with friends, at the movies, you know, whatever, sitting by a really pretty lake. And I don't know, just like fun that's fun when you're having it. And type two fun is fun that's, or something that's not fun while it's happening, but that you're afterwards really glad to have done it. And it's this idea, right, from the Donald Miller quote, that joy costs pain. Um, basically, this entire hike was type two fun. And if I think if I would have been with a hiking partner or been with friends, um, it's more type one fun because you do have some more in the moment laughs. But when you're completely alone, sure, there were times that I felt really proud and I felt peaceful or I felt, you know, a high sense of like reward. I don't know, but it wasn't 
fun. doesn't mean that I was miserable, but it certainly wasn't fun a lot of times in the moment. I mean, I, I had incredible moments on the Arizona Trail, moments of awe, you know, at the rugged beauty of the landscape, moments of intense pride in myself and my strength and courage, moments yeah of laughter with kind people in town, lots of experiences of gratitude for every single person who helped me out along the way. And there were tons of them, but those moments of joy or appreciation were often preceded by misery. Like, okay, like the gorgeous top of a climb that came after beating my way through thorns, you know, hiking up a steep, rocky trail, you know, sweating and cursing the whole time and being in pain, you know, to get up there. Um, the intense gratitude that I would feel when I when I would reach, let's say, like a, a water spigot, right? Like a guaranteed water source. Um, that would that often came on the heels of 20 or 25 plus miles of, you know, a dry stretch where there was no water. And that whole time was filled with misery and water anxiety and fear. And then just the absolute joy and, you know, feeling elated, you know, at coming to the water. Um so I felt like the misery and joy were often, it was often a cycle or one would follow the other. One of my goals for this trip was to document it, honestly. Um, in real time, I chose to do that on Instagram, but I took a lot of notes and obviously I'm doing more in-depth writing now. But my goal was really to not sugarcoat my experience, especially the hard parts. And there were a lot of hard parts. I'm a beginner to this life, this long distance hiking. And being a beginner is hard, right? Like no matter what it is. And in the case of the wilderness, being a beginner isn't only hard, it's often really scary. Like I have a life and a job and a partner that I love here at home and being completely on my own for days and days at a time would sometimes feel freeing and peaceful for sure. But oftentimes it felt like agonizing torture, which doesn't mean that it's not worth doing. I don't know. It's so hard to explain. Um, so I think someone following along might've thought that overall, you know, why would I do something that was this miserable? Because of the very fact that I was really honest about the fact that it often was miserable, but I was also honest about the gratitude and the amazing moments and the other things. It's just that Carrot's, Carrot Quinn said this once in one of her blog posts. It was something about like, you know, this idea of, well, should I hike the PCT? And her answer was like, no, unless you're comfortable with the fact that it's like eight to 10 hours of misery for like five moments of joy. I, I don't remember exactly what she said. Maybe it wasn't like that, but it was something like that. And that's true. Like it's eight to 10 hours of like either boring or slog or whatever. And then you have these, you know, pockets of intense happiness. Um, so sure, there were plenty of days where I was miserable on the AZD, but afterwards, I'm honestly filled with so much joy at having hiked it, not only at having completed it, but just having tried to do it. And so sort of answering your question about, you know, feeling like I have something to prove, I honestly never felt, at least on this hike, that I had anything to prove to anyone else. Like I said before, if anything, I needed to prove my own strength and resilience to myself. And the only way to do that is to do it. You can't build resilience and toughness, which are two things that I really value without going through the fire, so to speak. And the fire is hot. <laughs> it's fucking awful when you're in it. Um, I don't know. It might not make sense. Maybe I'm not explaining it correctly, but I love doing hard things, not even really for the outcome or for proving something or, you know, some kind of a shiny finish, but I, I love it for who I have to become in order to even have a shot at reaching the outcome. Um, my friend Lauren, you know, says this quote that I've shared, you know, this thing that she says that I've shared a lot, this idea that it's a privilege to be able to choose your suffering. 
And I never want to glorify suffering, like involuntary suffering, like that's awful. Um, But if you have the privilege to be able to be comfortable all the time or to choose to put yourself in hard situations, like not only is that a privilege, but I think that's where growth happens. Um, Doing hard things in one arena carries over into other areas of my life. Like at least for me, no question is that true. I've already been bolder in my truth-telling, my activism, speaking up, you know, since coming home, bolder in the goals that I'm making. I care less, a tiny bit less about being liked. I feel like that's sort of my like overarching work. It's, you know, obviously we all want to be liked, but I care a little bit less. Um, I believe more in my ability to do hard or tedious things. I'm finally, like I said, getting up the courage again to try to build a regular writing habit after, you know, trying and failing to do that over the past 10 years. And a large part of why those things are true and is because I did this hard hike, like the, the, just the fact that like I was miserable and endured that proved to me that I can do that, that I can do other hard things, you know, like writing other hard things that I ultimately love, but that often feel like a slog when they're in the middle of them. There's, I don't remember who said it, but there's that quote, um, about writing that, I think it was a woman where she was saying, you know, I don't like writing, but I love having written. And I feel that way about running oftentimes too. Like it doesn't have to feel awesome when you're doing it in order for it to give you what you need. And like, uh, you know, uh, again, to like, I guess the, the second part of the question of, you know, why not doing, why not do a trip that's enjoyable? Um, I'm all about having fun. I'm all about pleasurable experiences in general. There's plenty of that in my regular life. I do lots of fun day hiking. There's, you know, plenty of low-key fun local camping options, you know, here where I live and plenty of friends to do that with. There's no shortage of that. But to be honest, that's not what I want from my longer solo hikes. I do them because they're hard. I was miserable on this hike and, you know, sometimes and differently miserable last year because my skills and experience don't yet equal the level of challenge that I'm pursuing. Maybe that'll change in the future. You know, like I said before, the one thing that I would want to change on a future hike is to, you know, develop more skills before going out there. So maybe the stronger and more experienced and therefore less afraid I become, the less miserable I'll be on a day-to-day basis. That theory seems to make sense. I mean, that's my theory. We'll see. Um, But I don't think that I'll ever stop aiming for hard things. And the thing about hard things is that they're exactly that. They're hard. But to me, I think that's why they're so sweet in the end. I'm Emily from Columbus, Ohio. And my question is possibly a little awkward, but I'm going to go ahead and ask um, as a follow-up to a couple things you mentioned on Instagram while you were hiking. Uh, you mentioned having your period in one post and in another, you mentioned masturbating and somehow it had never occurred to me that hikers and backpackers would have to deal with both of those things while out in the wilderness. So if you're willing to talk about it, um, I would be really curious to hear what both of those experiences were like for you. Thanks for keeping it real, Nicole. <laughs> okay. Uh, the masturbation thing, uh, that came up for me in two different contexts on this hike. The first was in the early days when it was, so the beginning of the hike, it was so cold. I had planned for the heat of the desert, you know, expecting it to be really hot. That's so much of what I heard was that it was hot. It was hot. It was hot. But when you start at the end of September, you know, up in Northern Arizona, um, it's cold. You're up, you know, uh, 
within, I think the first day and a half, I was up over 8,000 feet, 8,500 feet. And it was cold. The, we had a real, um, drop in temperature the first few nights. It was, um, I think in the low thirties, the first night, and then 24, 25, 26 degrees. And that is, that is cold. And one of the only ways, um, that, you know, to stay warm in the night when it's like dark for 12 hours and you're laying in your sleeping bag in your tent and you're cold, you want to generate body heat. You can do crunches, right? Do like little exercises or you can masturbate. I mean, Hey, you do what you got to do. Right. Um, but the time I think, um, Emily that you're referring to that I mentioned on Instagram that I talked about this on Instagram, I think it was in reference to how boring it is to lay awake all night in your tent. Um, it's no secret that I have a really hard time sleeping on trail. And with uh, the season that I did this hike, the seasonal lack of daylight, I'd often be in my tent for 12 hours at a time. Um, I don't like night hiking. I did it you know, a, a couple of times, but mostly I wanted to be in my tent when it was pitch black. And that was by the end at like 6 p.m. And then it wouldn't get light again until like 6.30, 6.45 a.m. It's a lot of hours. Um, there isn't much to do when you're camping alone other than, you know, meditate for sure, which I did reading, writing both things um, that I would do on my phone, but I was conscious of not draining my phone battery too much or masturbating. It's a really good way to spend your time. Again, you do what you got to do. Um, so I guess that's sort of like a practical answer to that question. For me, it was more practical than, you know, this like very sexual thing. Although I will say that it, this something that surprised me on the hike because I was so filthy and felt like next level disgusting a lot of the times. I I don't know if it was like the animalistic feral nature of, you know, being out in the wild, but I actually found myself thinking about sex a lot. Like sexual fantasies often got me through really boring hiking stretches or long nights. Um, I don't know. It's fun and effectively distracting to fantasize about the complete opposite of your current situation, right? So when I'm like so disgusting and I smell awful, um, there was something nice about thinking these like sexy thoughts. I also think there was something to be said about how alive that I felt during this hike. Like I said, I was dirty for sure, but there's this is this kind of like wild animal feeling that takes over at a certain point where like Often, yeah, you're miserable, but you're alive. And for whatever reason, that translated to a lot of sex thoughts for me. Who knew? <laughs> I actually, this is an interesting subject that I would love to talk to other hikers about to get their just kind of like thoughts. Um, so yeah, maybe if you're a long distance hiker, reach out to me and let me know about your sexual fantasies and masturbation on the trail. Um, as for getting your period on trail, <laughs> yeah. The, the, the one time that I got it, um, on the AZT, it was a mile into the section between Pine and Superior, um, the Matazals, which is known as, like I said, the hardest section of trail. So like, of course that would happen, right? When my pack was super heavy, I was starting a five and a half day section, which would be the longest that I was going to be out there. It was going to be the hardest and most remote hiking I'd ever done. So of course I get my period, right? <laughs> um, Something that I had been meaning to do before the trail that I never got to was break my habit of using tampons and switch to one of those cups. I think they're called Diva Cups. I literally have one and haven't used it. Um, laziness, I don't know, like not wanting to change a really ingrained habit, but that's one of my 2018 goals for real because I think that that would have been um, also easier on the trail and less wasteful. Um, but just to answer your to, to get specific about the question of dealing with my period on trail, I brought the small tampons with no applicator and I made it work. But I mean, 
it's it's not the best, right? Like you're carrying a Ziploc bag of bloody tampons. There's no way to make that more appealing, right? Like that just is what it is. Um, and to be honest, that's a lot of the attitude that I developed on trail. Just like, well, it is what it is. Like shrug. Okay. Moving on. Um, and so that, that definitely helped. I will say this idea of, of, you know, dealing with your period on trail, I have really bad cramps usually where oftentimes, you know, the first day or so of my period, I will be on the couch, like with a heat pad, taking ibuprofen. And I didn't have cramps at all. Um, this time on the hike. And I think it has something to do with just the intense level of physical activity. Maybe my body like wasn't letting me feel other feelings because I was already having so much pain and discomfort from other things. But surprisingly, my cramps were non-existent and that was awesome. Um, but sort of overall, I talked about those things, you know, getting my period, masturbating. I talked about those things on Instagram because I wanted to tell the truth. Long distance hiking is not just you know, like doing yoga on a mountaintop and posting an inspiring quote, not to shame anybody who does that, you know, there's a place for everything. But one of the things that in retrospect made my first hike last year so particularly challenging was the lack of true, detailed, honest accounts, especially from women of what life is really like out there. It's really easy to romanticize long distance hiking. And yeah, it's it's awesome in a lot of ways. But Long distance hiking sounds incredible from the comfort of your home, right? It sounds like an adventure. You're looking at all these beautiful pictures. You think about how freeing it's going to be to be out in nature. And it is incredible. Like it honestly is, but it's also fucking awful and painful and lonely. And it was really important to me to be honest about those things as well. And so I couldn't do that without being like, yeah, having my period, right? Or, you know, whatever else. Um, yeah. And with this kind of stuff, if anyone has, you know, more specific questions about like this, like day to day, like real life on trail, um, I would be totally happy to, to talk about that. Hey, Nicole, this is Meg from Connecticut. My question is how you think the hike affected your relationships. You talked a lot on the hike about your loneliness and how lonely the trail was and how you wanted to be or how you were so alone so much of the time and how that felt. I'm wondering how you think the hike is going to impact your coastal relationships with your family and also your friends and how you view those differently now that you've come back from the hike. Yeah. Loneliness. Um, yeah, I was, I was really lonely. I, I think I was prepared for the loneliness in an abstract way. I knew that it was going to be like this. I knew that I wasn't going to see people every day. But honestly, how can you really prepare for something that you've never experienced, you know? I mean, you you can't, I think is the answer. So, the first time that I didn't see, you know, another human for 2 days, 3 days, 4 days, it was incredibly hard. Um you're out there, you're having such an intense experience seeing new things every day, every mile, and there's no one to share it with, no one understands. And that can create distance between you and the people in your life for sure, which is hard. Even if they're super supportive, um, they don't get it. They don't know, you know, what it is that you're going through and, and that's hard. But as far as like how this impacts my relationships on the flip side, holy shit, did this hike make me appreciate my people? Um, I think that in a lot of ways it showed me who my people really are. The friends and family who texted, called, emailed, checked in constantly. It meant, it meant everything to me. The friends who added notes to my resupply boxes, who went out of their way to tell me that they believed in me and that I could do this. 
Um, my husband, of course, who was my constant emotional and logistical support person, my mom, as afraid as she was, um, you know, she was really supportive. She came to meet me at the end of the trail. We spent a couple of days together when I was finished. My dad and his best friend, Jim, they visited when I was an Oracle. Adam came to hike with me for a few days towards the end. Um, my girl, Kate, who flew to Phoenix, drove out to random ass Mormon Lake to spend the weekend and one of my rest days with me. She brought me like all the food that I was craving and could ever have possibly wanted. She was there for me over and over during this hike. Stuff like that, like those acts of, of kindness from friends, they're ones that I will never, ever forget. And they were particularly potent for me because of how lonely that I was. Like I was so grateful for a kind text message because I was so lonely. Um, thinking about that, honestly, I feel like this hike taught me a lot about what it means to really show up for the people that you love. It's something that I'm constantly striving to be better at myself, but that came into focus a lot. Um, yeah, a lot on this hike. Um, I don't know. The last thing I think that I'll say about loneliness and its impact on my relationships is to talk about the effect that it had on my relationship with myself. We're always connected these days, right? Like plugged into what everyone else is doing and posting and what they think and what they like. And we're constantly getting validation on our own thoughts and social media posts, you know, in the form of comments and likes. And I'm always only one text away from connecting with any number of friends, you know, in my regular off trail life. And that, that's great, like for sure. But until this hike, I had never spent such an immense amount of time entirely alone. And I mean, alone, alone, right? Like for the majority of the hike, it was just me. And that was, honestly, it was agonizing. It was awful. It was, honestly, I think it was the hardest part of, of Arizona. Like, of course, yeah, it was rocky and the water was scarce and the conditions were hard, but being so alone, that was the hardest thing for me. But while it was hard, I mean, while I was, it was hard when I was going through it, what I didn't realize was what was happening in the background um, during that time, like in my subconscious mind, in my soul. Outwardly, I was struggling. I was really acutely aware of the pain and of the loneliness, but inside I was getting stronger every time that I, you know, saw a rattlesnake or heard a scary noise in the night and I felt so alone. It was tough, but I was getting stronger. When I questioned my safety as a solo woman on trail, you know, I'd sometimes feel uncomfortable, but I was getting stronger. Uh, the one time that the wind almost blew me off the side of an exposed ridge, that was terrifying. Um, when I had to decide the safest place to camp each night, when that was, you know, my decision and my decision alone. Uh, the time that I was huddled in my tent during a lightning storm, all alone on the saddle of a mountain. Um, when I had to night hike by myself, terrified literally every single second, because that's something that I had never done before. Through all of that, I was getting stronger. And it wasn't until the second to last day on trail when my friend Adam, who was supposed to do the final three days with me, but had to unexpectedly get off trail before then. Um, and I found myself alone again after not thinking that I would be alone for the rest of the trip. It wasn't until that moment that I realized how strong I had gotten through going through all of that by myself. That afternoon, my it was my final afternoon on trail when I was hiking thousands of feet up into the final mountain range before me reaching the um, Mexican border. I got stuck in a freezing wind and rainstorm up at nine thousand feet, you know, uh, and had to throw up my shelter really quick. And it was kind of a an intense situation, but I was calm within myself the whole time. Um, I didn't once wish that someone else was there with me. I didn't think, oh, that I couldn't handle this. I didn't feel lonely for the probably the first time, even though I was so alone. And that's when I knew that my relationship with myself had changed. Um, 
I don't know, like it's, it feels like really silly to say, but I realized that I could be with myself, that I liked myself, that I was enough by myself. And honestly, I think this hike was worth it for a lot of reasons, but this might be the number one, like what happened on the other side of all of that loneliness. Hello, my name is Donlan Dean, and my question is, what have you done differently in your life at home as a result of doing the impossible, hiking the hike you didn't think you could finish? Hmm. Um, well, the ending of this hike felt really different than the ending of last year. When I finished the hike last year, my feet were wrecked. My body was wrecked. I was in so much pain. I was literally like hobbling for like five days afterwards. And it was kind of a bummer. Um, I feel like I got through the hike last year, but like barely. And something that um, experienced hiker friends had told me was that the the trouble with doing the hike that I did last year is that um, it wasn't long enough for me to pass the point where my body actually adapts. Like it takes time for your muscles and joints and tendons and, you know, your feet, you know, blisters, all of that to, you know, you have to get to the other side of that. You have to make it through that to the point where then you are really strong and kind of like this like badass hiking machine. And the thing I'm really grateful about this year is that this hike, you know, I was out there for 44 days. It was 800 miles. I definitely passed that point. So when I finished Sure, I was tired and I was glad to be done, but I felt awesome. I was so strong. I absolutely could have kept going, could have kept hiking. And that changed sort of the mental, my, I don't know, like the mental space that I came home from the hike in. Um, you know, I, yeah, I felt really strong. And that carried over into this feeling that I shared before that I really believe in myself, not all the time, not unconditionally, but a lot more than I did before the hike. And I've, I'm finding being home that that's carrying over to absolutely everything. Um, the thing that I miss the most about the trail is the simplicity of trail life. Like that essentially your only goal is get to Mexico, don't die. Right. Um, and, as a result of of missing that and appreciating that, um, I've spent a lot of time these past few weeks boiling all of my other plans and goals down to their essential components so that I can hopefully build an off-trail life that's focused on the things that matter most um, and not sort of so fractured and so distracted. Um, I mentioned, you know, before aiming to develop a regular writing habit, but in general, I'm putting, now that I'm back um, from the trail, I'm putting a lot of emphasis on developing regular habits that honor my most important things, writing, fitness, having honest conversations, obviously through the podcast, uh, local activism and volunteering and showing up for my people. I've done the work this past month to get clear on sort of what the regular or even daily tangible actions are for each of those five things for the next few months. And that feels really good to be able to say like, okay, I know that writing's important to me. Here's what that looks like on a day-to-day basis. That means, you know, aiming for writing 2000 words per day, five days per week. That's my goal. Am I always going to meet that? Probably not, but that's, you know, that's my goal. And then same thing with fitness, with the podcast, with, you know, the activism and volunteering with, you know, my friends and family, I took these more like abstract, sometimes larger things like, oh, I want to, you know, have honest conversations with the podcast. Okay. What does that look like? Okay. That looks like doing five seasons of the show in 2018. Okay. Here's going to be the release dates for those. Here's the live events that I'm doing. Here's like really getting clear on the specifics, um, to hopefully make things more simple. That's definitely something that I've done, um, after coming back. Um, that's, that's, I think the, the biggest change that I can think of. 
As far as what's next with hiking, that's something that I'm thinking about as well. Um, I would love to prioritize one long hike per year for as long as that's what I'm still excited about and interested in. I'm not sure what that hike will be for 2018. I would love to southbound the PCT. Uh, to be honest, that's having the like getting under my skin, can't shake it feelings that Arizona had for this year. But I'm not sure that being gone for four months, um, and that would be like best case scenario, I think finishing that in four months. I don't know that being gone for that long is something that my husband's ready for, or if it's even the right time for that, given how many creative and work-related projects that I'm excited about right now. Um, so I'm also looking at the Colorado Trail and a few other options as well. But you know, when I, I think I can't answer the question of like what I'm doing differently at home as a result of sort of doing this hike without acknowledging that the, one of the big things that came out of this hike was that I want to do more hikes. Right? So, um, we'll see, I'm aiming to make a decision on my hike for 2018, probably by April. Um, so yeah, we'll see. Whew. Um, that was a lot of questions, a lot of great questions. Um, thank you for asking me hard, challenging things that force me to be introspective and honest. There's obviously so much more that I could talk about, you know, the more of the day-to-day reality, but I think I covered a lot of that on Instagram too. So speaking of Instagram, thank you so much for supporting me um, throughout the hike. Every single kind comment um, really meant the world to me. It was really hard to do this hike and I didn't quit. And more often than not, that had something to do with you. So honestly, thank you so much for that. Um, what's the last thing that I want to say? Yeah, I've said it before and I'll say it again. We can do hard things, whatever that looks like for you, whatever that means, you know, you believed in me on this hike and I believe in you and you're not alone. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. And speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like you. If you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, and if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much your support means to me, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together. 